welcome to the Daily Reprieve, where we provide essays, speaker meetings, workshops, and conferences in podcast format. We are an ad-free podcast. If you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and drop a dollar or two into the virtual basket. Please consider donating monthly by clicking the Donate Monthly button. However, one-time donations are always welcome. Just click the Donate Now button. Now, without further ado, this episode of The Daily Reprieve. Okay. Great. Is that just for box sound or yeah. is that for the recording? No, just the sound. Okay, let's. Hello, everyone. Uh, As you can see, I've been kind of um, inspired to not give just classic separations of my story back to basics, etc. I've just kind of been inspired today to bring stuff in, let God talk through me, hopefully, and see where this takes us. And I want to continue a bit about my journey with sex in marriage and that a few years ago some guy at the at a meeting said I only have sex with my wife once a week on the same day and I left that meeting I said that guy what's he talking about that takes all spontaneity out of sex. Yeah. Like my sex was ever spontaneous. <laughs> it's all planned. I mean, nothing spontaneous when it comes to sex for me. And so I said that was ridiculous. And then some years later, something happened, and I looked at Nancy, I said, how would you like if we just did it the same day, once a week, period. She said, okay, which kind of shocked me. (laughs) Okay. I can't tell you how over the past many years it has helped our situation and our marriage. This is not a solution for everybody. But why has it worked so well for us? She now knows when I'm nice to her, And let's say we pick Monday night. When I'm nice to her, and it's not Monday night, she knows I'm being nice to her to be nice to her, not to get sex. I know on a Tuesday that if I'm thinking about having sex with her, since it's not our night, It means that's my addiction, my lust. Yes, I know we're not going to have sex. Yes, that's not our prescribed night. So what the heck am I thinking about it for? I also know that I could be honest with Nancy. I don't have to say yes when I mean no, because on the days I thought maybe there was a chance we'd have sex, I'd say yes when I really meant no. 
about other issues and living in dishonesty in the name of guaranteeing I'd get some that night. So it's been a very, very freeing experience for us. Tremendously free. Now I came in at 44. Uh, in two weeks I'll be 74. Um, some years ago, uh, I, I want to put it diplomatically, um, the quality of my erections weren't like they used to be. Was that diplomatic enough? I don't know. <laughs> um, we hear about men being impotent and all, and we get confused, I think. Uh, this, I used to think it meant not being able to do it. But it is a matter of, qu of quality because as you get older, the blood doesn't flow in just like it used to. And so the issue of would it be safe for a sex addict to take Viagra came up. And when my wife, I first mentioned it, all she could hear was four hours. <laughs> May it only happen. Change the batteries. So, you know, we tease all the time. We in Nashville, a lot of our goals is. Uh, for me especially with my sponsees, is to remind them this is not a monastic order. Essay is not a monastic order. It's not about monks. It's about comfort and not living in lust. And so I really work with my single sponsees for them to eventually get married. And I've worked with many, many who have been able to get married. But what happens is the day of their marriage, they start freaking out, especially if they've been married before. So we have this little routine, a group of us, and they'll call and we'll, I'll say to them, by the way, don't get too frightened. It's like bicycle riding. You never forget how to do it. <laughs> I also tell them, by the way, my sponsor would always say, don't make a big deal out of it. Even rabbits do it. I mean, how much intellect does this effort take? We then say, I'll usually be the one to say it, I'll say, and by the way, don't worry about it too much. If it lasts a minute, you're lucky. <laughs> and then the other guy says, you better believe if it lasts a minute, you're lucky. <laughs> um, we tend to make a big deal of this. This whole thing for usually from beginning to end, if it takes 15, 20 minutes, it's a lot. Not for everyone, perhaps you're marathoners, but for the most part. And the act itself hardly takes any time at all. Especially sex addicts tend to do things rather 
rapidly. Look at the time and energy and effort and preoccupation we take over an act that might take 20 minutes once a week, a couple of times a week, depending on guy's age or their addiction or whatever. We make it so disproportionate to the reality of life. We make it so much bigger than it is. And especially addicts. You know, Jess, my old essay sponsor, would say these three buddies were walking down the street and this beautiful woman was coming up to them the other way. And two of these guys were not sex addicts. And one of the guys were was. And the two guys who weren't sex addicts said, man, isn't she gorgeous? Isn't she wonderful? Would I love to go to bed with her, etc." And they all walked on. She walked past them. Two minutes later, the two guys who weren't sex addicts never even knew if she existed. And the sex addict, five years later, is replaying that scene. Jess would tell the story of this famous guru in, in India. He, he was walking down this road with um, uh, a, uh, his disciple. And he and the disciple were walking down and this beautiful woman with this big large dress and was walking near the road and there was this big mud puddle. And all of a sudden the guru goes over to this woman and he picks her up and he carries her over the mud puddle and puts her down. And about three miles down the road, the disciple says to Master, Master, I am so confused. I'm so concerned. I don't understand what happened. And the master said, what do you mean? And he said, well, you're not only supposed to touch a woman, you actually picked her up and carried her. And the master said, oh, yes, student, I picked her up and put her down. And three miles later, you're still carrying her. That's sexual addiction for me. And so in our lives, we've had this experience of walking through Viagra, of um, walking through areas that, thank goodness, I had someone I knew in the program who walked through Viagra before me. But my wife was very frightened. Would this do get me going again? And it never did. Nothing for the next 24 hours will get me going again. Because if it did, I'd stop taking it. I'm not going to act out today if my ass falls off. 
and later on hopefully we'll talk about positive sobriety how hard it is to give something up if you don't get something as good or better in return just too difficult Nothing, nothing feels like an orgasm. Rats will stop eating when you stimulate certain parts of their brain that simulate orgasm or things like that. They'll push the button and never push the food button. So our program is really about finding the comfort so that we don't have to go back and use very self-destructive tools to try to relieve our discomfort. Now, I was thinking about sexual abuse and mentioning to my wife this morning um, how I've been sexually abused by cousins, by uh, when I was very young, by I mean, many sexual abuse issues. And how at one point I had to realize that I had to let it go. Just had to let it go. And why? Because one day I realized no one sexually abused me more than I sexually abused myself. I am the... um, the one who has perpetuated over the years until I came into the program, uh, I am the perpetrator to myself. You know, there was a sign in an AA clubhouse in Manhattan, I'll never forget it. It said, no enemy of mine has ever hurt me more than I have hurt myself. Man, until I grasped that I was always in constant conflict. My story has lots of other aspects to it. We'll get to it hopefully through other things we talk about. But I wanted to talk about basics. Basics of this program I talked started out about honesty. How without self-honesty, we're going to have a tough time staying sober. You know, being honest with ourselves. And lately, and I've been sharing with, with Mark quite a bit, you know, I heard this some years ago. By the way, everything I say to you is something I heard. Or I've based it on something I've heard. Once I give you original thinking of my my own, you're in trouble. <laughs> we just pass it on. We get it from others. Somehow it becomes ours, and we somehow say it in our own way. But we merely pass it on. If I weren't here to tell you this, I wouldn't be able to keep it. It's only by giving it away that I could keep it. I've got a lot to give away. 
that's why um, it sounds kind of arrogant, but I'm telling you, it's not for me the arrogance. I won't travel all day somewhere and then travel home all take all day to speak for an hour. I, I'm just busting. I have too much to give away. Can't do it in an hour. I, I can't tell you how much people have put into me over the years that sometimes I just feel like I'm busting if I can't share it with you. So when it comes to basic issues of sobriety and my sobriety in this program, being honest with myself is one of the keys. Now it's tough being honest with yourself. You can't do it necessarily in your brain. This brain's too sophisticated to help us lie to ourselves. That's why Bill and his, his greatness, Bill and Bob and the guys at that time, talked about a written inventory. Writing this with pencil and paper. Also, I cannot do this without a sponsor. I cannot trust my thinking. I talked to my sponsor last night, the day before. I have an SA sponsor. I have an AA sponsor. If someone's sponsoring and doesn't have a sponsor, I strongly recommend they do a written inventory about it. If they tend to be like most of us, who end up thinking we're God. That we don't need what other people need. We're special. I need my sponsors. My first sponsor, basically the one that I had the longest in my early years, um, had me call him at least once a day. And that was before we had answering machines. And I'd have to call him sometimes 10 times a day to catch him in. But it taught me not to trust my thinking. My disease lives in my brain. It does not live in my genitalia. We got it confused. My disease is not about my genitalia. My disease is about my brain. That is why Roy, in his, his connection, his being inspired, did not say we were powerless over masturbation and our lives became un unmanageable. He did not say we are powerless over prostitutes and our lives became unmanageable did not say our lives we were powerless over pornography it said we were powerless over lust you talk about basic dishonesty not only individually but as a fellowship and you got it this is a fellowship in denial about what Roy wrote 
Where does it say we're powerless over pornography? It says lust, and every time, sometimes it will say sexually acting out. But it usually always says lust and sexually acting out. I think there are only very few exceptions to that. We are powerless over what's between our ears. Masturbation is not what is causing the endorphins and the craving. It's the fantasy that gets us drunk that then ends up in pornography or masturbation. Or sexually abusing my wife. It's what is between my ears. I needed this program even if I never masturbated or was abusive to my wife or was promiscuous. I needed it just for my thoughts and how they progressed from casually thinking about sex with a girl and then with an African-American girl, and then with some orgies, and then the men came into the fantasies with the orgies, and then with the men, and then always more and more and more. The progression in my mind, and then I ended up having to act out that progression. Jess would say the first thought is on God. The second thought is on me. I cannot stop that first thought. With me, it's really not a thought, it's an image. I cannot stop that first image. It's what do I do with that first image that makes a difference. If I build on that image and I develop a sexual fantasy, it's going to produce a phenomenon of craving. And chances are I'll have real problems in the program. So I do not sexually fantasize. Do not let sexual fantasies come in when I'm intimate with my wife. I hit my knees beforehand. I give it to God. And I just talk to God a lot during it. And when aberrant thoughts come in, you know, I've just learned tools not to let it become a moving picture. Not because I'm a goody-goody. Not because I think it's immoral. Personally, I don't think it's, you know, if someone wants to have affairs, go for it. But not if you have sex addict. <laughs> if people want to masturbate, go for it. But not if you're a sex addict. And how do we base that? How do we know that? From our basic knowledge through AA. AA, you will not hear them say, get rid of alcohol, close liquor stores down. It is not a prohibitionist fellowship. 
AA says we alcoholics cannot successfully drink. I as a sex addict cannot successfully have a sexual fantasy. I could have them, but I'm just fooling myself with inner dishonesty if I think I could do it successfully. It will eventually, eventually turn into relapse. It might take a day or a week or five years. Someone I sponsor now, after their uh, relapse, they asked me to sponsor them. They had seven years. It took him seven years. We had to let go, absolutely. We had to let go of our old ideas. The old idea for many people in this program is that as long as I'm not masturbating or acting out, it's okay to act in. It's okay. Well, I wish you luck. I don't see it working successfully for people. Now, why? If this is truly a disease which I believe, the sexual fantasy will trigger off the phenomenon of craving. It will then get the endorphins going. You will be drunk before you ever reach the prostitute. You'll already be drunk. Driving down the road to find her, see if she's on the street, whatever, you will already be drunk. So endorphined up that you'll get to a point where I got, where my disease took me to trying to seduce policemen. How I never got arrested is beyond me, and I seduced policemen. What can I say? But I was already so drunk. And then what happens? You get enough fantasies going, you get enough endorphins going, and then you try to stop it. And you're in this cycle, in the addictive cycle again. So one of the basics for me is to believe this is a disease and I am allergic to lust. Not biblically here. We're not talking about religion. We're talking about physiology. We have a very, very religious group of people in SA, much more so than AA. We have a disproportionate amount of ministers and rabbis and clergy and fundamentalists. And it is so difficult to let go of the old idea that this is, I'm sinning and I better stop sinning. Why do we need to let go of that old idea? It never worked. It didn't work. It might work for others, but for people who have diabetes and they say, oh God, remove my diabetes, 
and they don't take their insulin that day, they're not going to be around too many days to ask God to remove it. It's what did God do to remove their diabetes? He had someone invent insulin, discover insulin. So it's not like God is not in the equation. But we tend, and I talked about this the other night, we tend to have two kinds of gods in this program. Two definite gods. And we usually have them simultaneously. One god is the tyrant, despot, villain god. He's waiting for me to screw up and he's going to zap me or my children. He's going to get me. Everything I do, he's going to get me. He's going to punish me. He's going to do this. He's going to do that. That's the one God. The other God we have is the Santa Claus God. The sugar daddy God. Oh God, bring me that Cadillac. I really need that Cadillac. And then you don't get the Cadillac and you say, Oh, I'm so angry at God. Oh, look what he did. I'm so angry at him. He didn't bring me what I wanted. In this fellowship, we get a very special God. We're told it says a God of our understanding, but don't believe it. As it tells us what our God of understanding is in the traditions. It says a loving God. It tells us in the third step, in the care of God. Care, that's love, care, concern. This other God phenomenon tends not to work well for sex addicts. But a loving God who knows how sick we are, who knows what we, the condition we're in, who loves us so much, he brings us to this fellowship to get help. And then what do we do? We find some excuse not to use the steps or use the program. I'll never forget in our early years, and you know, we met in a church and we had this very fundamentalist Christian come and he said, I can't come to these meetings because it doesn't say Jesus in the steps. And he kept getting sicker and sicker, would come occasionally, but really had a problem. And one day, I, he called me and he was suicidal. He, had, he was visiting in England. And I said, you need to get to a treatment center. And finally, he said, okay. And he goes to a treatment center. He calls me from the treatment center. This must have been in the early 80s, mid-1980s. And he said, oh, I went to a Christian treatment center. And I said, oh my God, they're just going to reinforce it. No, God gave them a gift. It was only in that Christian treatment center 
that someone could have been brave enough to say to him, your disease is hiding behind Jesus. It's using that to avoid you to go to a meeting in a church. So he told me that story and put it away somewhere. Well, about five, six years later, some Orthodox Jewish guy shows up. We don't have many Jews in Nashville, but this Orthodox guy with a you know, black hat and all, he comes to the meeting and he says, oh, I can't come to this meeting. It's in a church. <laughs> And I said, oh my God, the Christian can't come to the church because it doesn't say Jesus. And the Jew can't come to the meeting. The Christian couldn't come to the meeting. And the Jew can't come to the meeting because it's in a church. What's a common denominator? Their addiction is finding some excuse for them not to come to a meeting. That's what our brain will use. Why we can't do this, why we can't do that. When they told me I had to hit my knees twice a day, I said, impossible. Because when I grew up, if you hit your knees, you were punished, you were whipped. This would be considered idol worshiping. And I was brought up where I could not do that. And I said, no way. You're not going to get me to do that in the program. And I walked away from the person who said it to me. And I said, Harvey, Harvey, you're so full of shit. (laughs) You used to get on your knees to have sex with people. And you can't get on your knees to do the third step prayer. I'm telling you, my brain is dangerous. Cutting through the dishonesty is excruciating at times. But once we do it, what relief, what freedom. To thine own self be true. That's what my sponsor would keep saying to myself. So where does this honesty finally come in that I was saying that I was saying to people and to Craig and to Mark lately? Our relationship to God. Why doesn't this work for many people? Because they never get a personal relationship to their higher power. Why? They're praying, they're doing, because they're not honest with their higher power. You cannot have a relationship with anything that's not based on honesty. So what happens? Some guy will say, God, I don't want to act out today. Take it. I don't want to act out. It's a lie. He does want to act out. He just doesn't want the consequences. He lies to himself and he lies to God and he thinks he's going to have a connection because he's bringing God who he thinks God wants him to be rather than bringing God who he is. 
to get someone to say, God, I don't want to stop acting out, God. What can I tell you? I can't tell you how many times I tell people to do that and not even say, help me, just to tell them your truth. And they call me back in a week. They say, Harvey, I don't understand how it's working. I haven't acted out in a week. It's working because the program's based on honesty. You tell God who you are, but first you got to tell yourself who you are. That's the first step. Eventually it gets to the sixth and seventh step, and you could say, God, take this crap away. I don't want it. I don't want it. But how can you ask him to help you when you still want it, but you're telling yourself you don't want it, and you're telling him you don't want it? Or it, or whatever. So honesty is at the core of this. Self-honesty. This is not a shame program. All this shame crap people bring up. Oh, you're shaming me. Or if I, you say your sobriety date and you're just trying to shame us if we have to say ours and we're relapsing. And all this shame. Man, how can you have shame when you know it's a disease? Whenever you're in shame... You have given the finger to your first step. You're saying it's not a disease. I could control it. I'm not powerless. I won't won't choose Craig as an example, as I'm a good boy. (laughs) But have you ever been on the road? you've eaten some bad food <laughs> and you know you gotta go and the road sign says one mile to a rest stop and you say I could use willpower or sphincter power or whatever you want to call it I could do it one mile I got it I got it But if that roadside said 50 miles, there is no way willpower will work to stop the diarrhea from coming out. (laughs) Willpower will not work on this. Now, God power will... And the question came up to me before about something the book says about God and and doing this for us. God power will work, but it works through the steps. Having had a spiritual awakening is a result of these steps. What the heck? If God will do it all for us, why do we need steps? Yeah, he could do it for us, but that's not how it works. He does it with us through our steps, through sponsors. 
Jess would call it, we need a God with skin. I need to hear God through you. I walk into a meeting and I feel God at the meeting. I wish I could feel it when I go to synagogue. Very rare. I'll go to my religious services and immediately need to go to a meeting. (laughs) And the same thing if I had diabetes. If I if I'm not feeling well at a church or a synagogue service for some people church, synagogue, mosque, wherever they go, and they have diabetes, they can't wait to get home to take their shot of insulin. It's so hard for us to conceive of this because we get back into that fear of that punishing God. Oh my God, if I think that, what's he going to do to me? Or he's going to send me to hell. Well, let me tell you, I've been there. I once went to a bathhouse with public sex stuff and it red lights and the smells and the all. I've been there. He's given us a way to get out of that hell. And the way is the basic aspect of the way is that we just can do it for one day at a time. This is not a religious issue where we get reborn, you get called up, you come up, you get reborn, it's done forever. No. Our reborn that it talks about in chapter 5 is for one day at a time. Just like insulin only works for 24 hours or less. Each day I need to repeat my day. God, I'm getting intense. (laughs) It's time for a break. I don't I've never done this before. I'm seeing what, what God's directing me with. We're just having one talk here. You know, it's so powerful to let me just be his vessel. That 11 step prayer, we're merely his vessel, it comes through us, not from us. You know, and for one day at a time, let's have a hearty app. Oh, they haven't served. Yeah, they need to set it up. Let's have a hearty appetite. And um, thanks for listening to this stuff. Thank you.